Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I'm going to share with you an interview I did with integral philosopher Ken Wilber a week or so ago, where I got to ask him about his new ebook, which is titled Trump and a Post-Truth World, which you can get free, actually, at integrallife.com on their new site. And of course, if you've been listening to The Daily Evolver, you know that both Trump and the post-truth world are of great interest to me, and I think pretty much everybody at this point. And it's always so great to talk to Ken about current events where he turns his insight and, you know, just breadth of knowledge onto the topics that are arising and, and does what integral theory is so good at doing which is showing a bigger pattern and making sense of it. So thank you, Ken, for giving us your time. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Here's the interview. I've really been looking forward to this conversation with you, Ken, because we're going to do what I love to do and what I think integral theory is so good at. Right. And that is taking, you know, what's happening in the world. Right. And just seeing it in the pattern, bigger pattern of history and culture and consciousness and right. the movements of those. Right. Right. And specifically to focus on this white paper that you wrote that I think demonstrates the power of integral thinking and you know, related well, to current events. It's something that you do a lot, which is that if you back up far enough, at some point, the good news comes into view. Yeah. Interesting. Most people don't back up far enough. And yeah. so they, they're just caught with the daily ups and downs and ups and downs and, oh, today's good, oh, tomorrow's horrible, oh, today's good, oh, tomorrow's horrible. All that's true. I mean, nobody's denying that. It's like the stock market. I mean, you know, they can, there can be ups and downs. There can be great depressions and great recessions and all of that. But mm-hmm. on balance, it keeps going up. And that's what evolution does in in the universe. I mean, from quarks to atoms to molecules to cells to organisms and so on, there's this general overall Eros trend. And I don't think it's, you know, it's not to say that terrible things can't happen. They do. But there's... Evolution has brought us us to, to Donald Trump being the 45th president of the United States. Exactly, and you, and you have you to know. back up quite a bit to see that it's there. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it, it is, it's just a natural thing, I think, when you get this flash of an integral vision. It's just nothing else will do. It's boring to not, yeah. you know, back yeah. up and see the bigger picture. Exactly. So the title of your paper, and I want everybody to read it, is uh, Trump and the Post-Truth World. It's posted on Integral Life. And I guess we could just start there, Ken. This post-truth theme has really penetrated the culture, I I think brought on by Trump's behavior. And and I think it's the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year this year. Yep. And so maybe we just start with what are you you getting at in in this view of Trump and the post-truth world? Right. Because part of, I mean, I, people have been so upset, certainly sort of the crowd that we run in, the people that we know, not the more or less 50% 
of, of, of the country that voted for him. I mean, it goes to show that, you know, the, the, <laughs> the very specific circles we run in were virtually pretty much none of us knows too many people that are that are delighted by this i mean i've been i was surprised at the degree of anguish and lament and hair wrenching and i couldn't sleep at night and, oh i'm leaving the country i mean it was just you know you would have uh, thought world war three had started or, or something i mean the people were truly truly upset by this i get the upset but i think that they're just a little bit too identified with a little bit too narrow a perspective um, and that we need to back up just a little bit, take a little bit more integral view in order to see what's going on. And in part, the, the no truth aspect about it is one of the central ingredients. There's a, turns out to be a kind of a whole core of topics, and we'll get to them. And these include things like uh, a perspectival madness and nihilism and narcissism and a culture of no truth and so on. But where we need to start here is not by looking just at the obvious points that Trump attracted. So it's common to say, for example, that he attracted um, white, poorly educated males, for example. And there is truth to that, but he didn't just attract that. There was some other force that was driving him to actually end up reaching out across the whole broad segment of the population. People that want to change, for example, and green, certainly. And we're just going to assume people understand the colors we're talking about, yeah. amber, orange, green, and so on. Green certainly wanted change. Trump got 68% of the people that said they wanted change. 54% of people that thought the country was going in the wrong direction voted for Trump. It wasn't just poor people. The median income of those voting for Trump was $71,000. Mm -hmm. You would have thought the way he... <laughs> demonstrated, let's say, a much less than religious orientation that he would have, have put off uh, evangelicals, for example. He got 81% yeah, of the vote of evangelicals. And staggeringly, he nine points more than Hillary got on white women. So it wasn't wow. just this poor, hillbilly, white, uneducated Guys, there's some other force that was driving him across amber and, and orange and, and, and green, and he managed yeah. to pick off a fair number of, of all of those. Now, I do think that he predominantly activated ethnocentric amber, and, and we can talk a little bit about that. But as for this background force, it was, yeah. uh, in my opinion, Indeed, has to do with this whole no truth, a perspectival madness, nihilism, narcissism, because what we tend to see is that evolution itself, overall evolution itself, every now and then gets in uh, a little bit of a jam, gets a little bit derailed, and it has to self-correct. It actually has to sort of stop, kind of take pause, look around, if necessary, back up a few steps 
to the point before it started to derail, before something started to go wrong, and kind of refurbish and then start moving forward. And what we find, if we look at postmodernism in general, because evolution as such has what Maslow called a growing tip. It has a, a leading edge. I mean, it's always pushing forward into new and novel events. And therefore, there's always some sort of leading edge. There's always some sort of growing tip. There's this kind of out there and checking things out and kind of doing trial and error and pushing forward. And it's always transcending and including. It's always going beyond what went before, but it's always having to include what went before. And if it does that, then it introduces its own bit of novelty and and uh, and and therefore it continues to unfold as it has for some 14 billion years. Yeah. So the problem here, though, the leading edge for the past around 50 years, certainly since right around the 60s, has been green. And green is, is, is the stage of development that's known. Oh, there are several dozen developmental models. They all recognize green. It's referred to as pluralistic or relativistic or individualistic or human bond, early self-actualization, egalitarian, multiculturalism. Uh, in general, it's, it's postmodern. And there was a whole, and it was called postmodern because it's postmodern. In other words, it came after the general modern stage, which had been in existence for around two or three hundred years, and had been the leading edge for that amount of time. And it brought in, indeed, the whole modern world, which was a, a staggering change from the traditional, mythic, fundamentalist, religious worldview that existed before modernity. And those three major levels, by the way, traditional, mythic, literal, fundamentalist religion or traditionalism, and then modern, rational, profit, progress, business, science, or just modernity. And then the third stage as multicultural, pluralistic, relativistic, postmodernism. Those three main values are still the three main values that are at war in the Western world. They're actually called the culture wars. And yeah. the culture wars are indeed a battle between traditional mythic religion and modern, rational, scientific, individual freedom and postmodern, pluralistic, human bond, group equality, egalitarianism. Yeah. And so there, there are major tensions between all three of those. All three of them think that, that all the others are absolutely nuts. So we had this leading edge of, of, of green, and it started off great. It, it was involved in things like the civil rights movement, worldwide environmentalism, personal and professional feminism, a real drive to inclusion and anti-marginalization. So it's sometimes one name for the stage is the sensitive self in favor of LGBT rights and is largely part of the driver that saw so much progress in those rights in, 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 in the past few decades. 
But as it kept going, it, it just got more and more and more extreme until it got itself into a perfectly self-contradictory jam. It started out by simply noticing, as a lot of the early postmodern writers put it, there's nothing but history. And the reason is, as they sort of tried to kind of look for universal truths and and things that, that you could count on to be true for all people at all places at all times, and they couldn't come up with much. All they would would see is is well, boy, you know, five hundred years ago they believed this, and then a thousand years ago they believed that, and mm-hmm. everything was changing. Everything was a product of history. And then when when Thomas Kuhn came out with the structure scientific revolution, then that just allowed them to take science itself and toss it into the bin of nothing but history. And that was largely, by the way, a misreading of Thomas Kuhn, probably the largest misreading of an important book that we've seen this century. But Kuhn himself tried to fight the way it was being interpreted. The way it was being interpreted was science is not based on facts or data. It's just based on something called a paradigm, which is like a super theory. And theories are, in a sense, just sort of invented. And if you have a clash between two theories, it can't be decided by looking at evidence. It's just selected for any number of reasons, Postmodernists came to see it eventually selected due to some sort of oppressive reasons, colonialism or racism or sexism or something. But even science itself doesn't have any enduring truths. It's nothing but history. So if you take all of the great postmodernists, if you take uh, Derrida, Foucault, Bourdieu, Lacan, Leotard, Paul Demand, Stanley Fish, All of them would agree on one thing, namely, there's no such thing as truth. Truth is just a cultural fabrication. And whatever anybody calls truth is simply whatever some culture at some place or time can convince people is true. But that's it. It's a fashion. It's a fad. It's no more real than Hamlet's. And this goes for science. The difference between science and poetry, none. Not in terms of truth, because there is no truth. And so, all of a sudden, this started, I mean, I noticed this starting to dominate academia 30 years or so ago. I mean, it, it, sort of, it, started, it came in in the early 1960s. People that had heard of deconstruction or postmodern, post-structuralism, a very, very small percentage of the population. By 1979, the most widely quoted academic writer in America was Jacques Derrida, and the humanities itself became just overtaken by a postmodern post-structuralism or a deconstruction, and all of a sudden, truth was out. I particularly remember when this first hit me because I just finished about a decade-long period where I hadn't written anything because I was dealing with my wife's cancer. And Treya had died, and I had gone back to writing. And the first book that I wanted to write was Sex, Ecology, Spirituality. 
And I sat down to start writing it, and I realized I couldn't say a thing because postmodernism in the humanities had, had destroyed your capacity to make any sort of positive statement. All that was being done was deconstruction. You couldn't really pursue any positive statement with any form of legitimacy because there was no now, truth. Now, let me ask you this, Ken. Do you think that that was evolutionarily necessary just to like, clear the decks of all claims of absolute truth before we could then move into an, a new integration that you know, sort of brings it back, if you will? Well, it was true, but partial. And, and one of the ways to see that is in reference to, let's say, the, the work of Charles Peirce, who, of course, is, 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 uh, has had a big influence on me. I'm a huge fan. But Peirce basically said he was one of the ones that first came up with the idea that there's, there's nothing but history. And so he said, for example, what we call nature's laws are actually more like nature's habits. And I picked this up immediately because what happens is that by saying that you have nature's habits and, and habits keep repeating, so what you do have is you have re repeating patterns, patterns that continue to repeat. This doesn't mean that they're eternal metaphysical laws. It doesn't mean that they're given for all time. It doesn't mean that they were existing prior to this universe. But as this universe emerged and started to unfold certain patterns, kept repeating. And they had to, or else it would just be chaos after chaos after chaos. But quarks, for example, came together to form atoms. And those atoms became a habitual pattern, and they were repeated. And then atoms uh, came together to form molecules. Those became habitual patterns that repeated. And so those, those were not rigid laws, or as the scholastics would put it, ideas in the mind of God. You don't need that kind of, of explanatory power. But what Peirce did was reinterpret basically by saying there's nothing but evolution. And we can start to see the truth to that, but then you have to be very, very careful about what you mean by that. Because clearly, even though evolution is a habitual pattern, some of these patterns have been so habitual they haven't changed in 14 billion years. Atoms are still here. Molecules are still here. Those are very enduring patterns. Mm -hmm. And so given that, those patterns become anchors of enduring truth. Now, of course, it, it, as David Hume sort of pointed out, and most philosophers say, yeah, okay, there's no way around that. He pointed out the fact that something happens, you know, a thousand times in a row doesn't, doesn't guarantee it's going to happen tomorrow. The fact that the sun's come up every day for millions of years doesn't mean it's going to come up tomorrow. And no, it doesn't, of course. But that's, the, that's true whether you have, quote, laws or habits. So we acknowledge that. But in the meantime, we track habits. Habits become a grounding for our truth. And now, it turns out, of course, that the postmodernists, although they made all these claims of saying, for example, that because there's nothing but history and there is no truth, and I'll point out there was one slight minority alternative view 
to postmodernism. And that's mm-hmm. also one of the paths that I've taken. I'll come back to what that is in a moment. But just using Peirce's notion, for example, that all of evolution is, is a habitual unfolding. And he talked about love evolution as, as the evolution driving forward towards greater and greater wholeness and then an overall generative evolution itself. And all of these were, were habitual patterns that nature had settled into and that we could therefore depend upon. Now, postmodernism, this is where it started to get extreme. It's, so it started to say, okay, there is no truth. That means there are no universal truths. It, so all knowledge is contextual. All knowledge is constructed. There is no perspective that's superior. There's no value that's better than another. All values are equal. We can't have any ranking. We can't have any judging. There's a radical equality. There's nothing in the world that's superior to anything else. That's why all cultures, we have multiculturalism with all cultures having equal value. I ended up calling this overall view, as we'll see in a moment, it's self-contradictory. But the overall view is what I call a perspectival madness. That there's no perspective is better in any way than any other perspective. Every culture is fully evolved. Every culture is perfectly evolved for its time and place. It's completely adequately evolved for exactly what it needs to do. There's certainly no culture that's better for what needs to be done there. So, unfortunately, the postmodernists, in fact, believed none of that. And this is why they are so they became so profoundly contradictory. They maintained that there was no universal truth, but they believed that was a universal truth. They maintained that there's nothing that's constant, no transcultural truth. And yet they maintained that all knowledge is contextual, all knowledge is interpretive. It's not universally true, it's interpretive. All knowledge is not given, it's constructed. No perspective is better than another. And yet all of those things are true for all people, in all places, at all time. Universally. Universally. So the postmodernists get all of their universal truths all over the place. (laughs) And their universal truths deny truth to absolutely every alternative approach in existence. And so they believe, they clearly believe their view is superior, but they also maintain that their, their view is superior in a world where absolutely nothing is supposed to be superior. So the very statement that no one value is better than another, that one sentence is self-contradictory. Because it's claiming that its view that no values are better is a better view. It, they've got a better value. Then the people that think that, you know, uh, this value is better than that value, the postmodernists clearly think that their values are are better than any alternative. And so in one sentence, in every sentence they made, they were self-contradictory. This became known as the performative contradiction. And it meant that the very actions that the postmodernists were taking, they themselves were doing what they said either cannot be done or certainly should not be done. 
and yet they themselves were doing it in every sentence that they made. And the point is, for a leading edge, a leading edge cannot be radically self-contradictory or it can't lead. Because a self-contradiction says, do this, no, that's wrong. Do this, oh, that's wrong. No, do this, no, that's wrong. If evolution tries to go forward with a performative contradiction, it jams. It simply can't go forward. It, it can't act on that principle. And if your leading edge is a performative contradiction, your evolution stops. And that's been the problem with, with the whole extreme version of postmodern, post-structuralism, deconstruction, and the extreme green perspective. And this is what we call the mean green meme, because, because it's very nasty, and if you disagree with it, it's just, it can become brutal. And this sometimes surprises people, because green is always claiming to be all-inclusive and all-caring, uh, and so on. But green hates orange. It absolutely cannot stand amber. It loathes second tier. And yet it claims it's all inclusive. So they also, um, if, if you have a perspectival madness, if no value is you know, better than another, uh, except your value that claims that no values are better than another, if you have that, it's really a, uh, another name for nihilism. And in a world of nihilism, the only guide that you have left is your own narcissism. Because you're not allowed to have universal values that you try to follow. Because anytime you say you have a universal value, postmodernism is right on hand saying, oh, you believe that value. Okay, why don't you believe this other value? You're oppressing yeah. that other value. You're just trying to take your value and force it down everybody else's throat. That's what you mean by universal value. You, sir, are an oppressor. You, sir, are enslaving people. You are exactly the cause of everything that's gone wrong in history, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And they fundamentally believe that, even though they themselves are doing the same thing when they make that statement. And it's really, it's just amazing how quickly that came on. You're talking about the 60s. That was, whatever, 50-some years ago. And the culture just shifted. And that green came on with a bang and has really, I think, went from the philosophical to the cultural. It leaves people with a sort of a, a despondency. I noticed that in my green friends, that they feel like they're sitting in the ever-darkening world. Yes, and, and you're right, though. It came up fairly quickly, but this is what we find with leading edges. And just to give um, a real quick example of leading edge before green was, of course, orange. And orange represented, in terms of some of the different names that have been given that stage of development, its cognitive style is usually called formal operational cognition, or just simply reason. And that is to differentiate it from the previous general cognitive style, which is just sort of called myth, or mythic literal. So a mythic literal cognition, for example, will believe that everything that the Bible says is true. 
that Lot's wife really was turned into a sack of salt, that God really did rain locusts down on the Egyptians and kill every one of the Egyptian male firstborn kid. That's mythic thinking. Santa Claus, Zeus, the Tooth Fairy, Apollo, Aphrodite, all mythic. And humanity went through a very major, major epic of where mythic cognition was its, its fundamental form of cognition. And it was during that period that most of the world's great mythic religions were created. And and that remained that way until starting right around the, the time from the Renaissance to, to the Western Enlightenment. Now, of course, every stage has some downsides. The Western Enlightenment certainly had some downsides, but it had some extraordinary positives as well. And one was mythic thinking is, 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 is all ethnocentric. And that means that it believes that its particular group is special, is even selected by God, are a chosen people. And so the, the mythic religion that they adopt, and basically every major ethnocentric culture around the world adopted a, 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 a mythic-oriented religion. Now, there were also some, a very small portion, that were doing state development. And those were the mystics. And that's, that's a separate issue. We're not talking about those. We're talking about what's called exoteric, mainstream religion, the way it typically unfolded. And each of those religions felt that they had the only one correct way. So there's a very strong us versus them. And that remains uh, today among fundamentalists. Every fundamentalist religion believes that it's got the one and only true way. And so that dominated up until the emergence of the Western Enlightenment with the emergence of reason or formal operational thinking. It's also sometimes called achievement, progress, profit because in the sense of its sort of business mentality, driven by a scientific understanding, not a mythic revelation where simply somebody, a prophet, or somebody who is uh, um, apparently close to the divine being would hear something that the divine being was saying and they would translate it downward and and that was the source of, of, of what was fundamentally true and to be believed. Science believed in, in actual evidence. You actually went out and you checked something and you looked for evidence. You looked for truth. You looked for facts. And this determined what, what was knowledge versus what was mere opinion. And because it also had switched to reason, which was a third-person universal form of thinking, then its ethics switched from ethnocentric, which is my group and my group alone is right, to world-centric, which is all people are to be treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And so when that emerged, by the way, during the great mythic era, including, let's say, when, when St. Paul was writing uh, his epistles, his advice to a slave, for example, was to treat your master kindly and with strict obedience, accept Jesus, and this will allow you to, to accept your slavery with gratitude. That The notion that slavery was immoral didn't dawn on people at ethnocentric stages. 
And so every single major world religion condoned slavery because there was only an ethnocentric form of morals. But when we get to the Western Enlightenment, when we get to formal operation, when we get to orange reason, all people are to be treated fairly regardless of race or color or sex or religious creed. And so for the first time ever in in our whole 500,000 year history, in a 100 year period from around 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed by every rational orange culture on the face of the planet. Never ever happened before. Indigenous tribes had slavery. Magic tribes had slavery. Horticultural villages had slavery. The grand mythic traditional civilizations had slavery. Only modern orange rationality got rid of slavery. Now, the interesting thing was that whole sort of revolution, including the introduction of all the modern sciences, modern physics, modern chemistry, modern biology, modern astronomy, the French and American revolutions, bringing in uh, attempts at democracy over monarchy and aristocracy, serfs and slaves. All of that started to happen when only about 10% of the population was at orange. But somehow, when the leading edge hits about 10%, there's a kind of tipping point. And the values of that leading edge kind of tend to seep throughout the whole culture. Now, the whole culture is not fully adopting them themselves, or they themselves would be at orange. Well, the same thing happened at green. In 1959, 3% of the population was green. By mid-70, over 15% was. And so those green values, because green was the leading edge at that point, started to kind of seep throughout the culture. And by the way, the, whether the values are really good or really goofy, they still seep. And where originally good green seeped, pretty soon goofy green seeped throughout the culture. And we really did come down to a post-truth culture. That just kind of seeped through. This is exactly what the post, the great postmodern academics at the very leading edge of educational culture had been saying for 20 or 30 years. And it, it, it seeped out, it seeped into the culture, along with aperspectival madness. Uh, versions of aperspectival madness show up, for example, in things like, because you're not allowed, no value is better than another, you're not allowed to make fun of anybody. Now, I am very sympathetic with a great deal of that, but you could go too far. And the too far version was derisively known, at least by the right, by the term political correctness. But it got so bad, political correctness got so bad, particularly on college campuses, that some of the very, very greatest comedians in America categorically refused to do shows on college campuses anymore. Chris Rock, probably the funniest person in America, Jerry Seinfeld, 
the most successful television comedian in history, they both refuse to do college campuses anymore. They said they won't play there because you can't laugh at anything. That's a perspectival madness gone emotionally berserk. Pretty soon there are around seven major protected groups. One was African-American, one was women, one was the LGBT community, then Latinos, then disabled, and then was added Muslims. So uh, a true mm-hmm. politically correct person would not say, for example, Islamic terrorism. They wouldn't even use that phrase. That wasn't allowed. And so the the point was what that w- w- was doing, and the reason that we got this huge bifurcation is that it left out exactly that one class you're talking about, which happened to be a, a little over 50% of the population. Yeah, still the majority. Exactly. And that's the problem that we've got in this culture is that we are not, because leaving out that group, and we can do it larger because we can just point at them and say they're white. But inherent in the judgment that Green makes about that white group, because clearly they, they don't make fun of whites particularly if they fall into one of the other protected categories, if they're white disabled or white transgender or or any of that. But what it means is that we have this huge fragmentation between the ethnocentric, traditional, and modern, and uh, postmodern. The part of what we're really, the lesson that's really happening here is that because one of the first things the leading edge is supposed to do is it's supposed to help even though the leading edge will think that it itself has got the sort of one true way, what it's supposed to do in its capacity for leadership is to lead, is to be leader for all of these groups. You can't have a culture going forward that has internal rifts where the major stages of development don't just disagree with each other, but aggressively are at war with each other. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, that Integral could help us to make some differentiations here, because clearly there are Trump supporters, you pointed it out, uh, that have, are very successful in the modern world. And there are people from really all over the spectrum, but there's something in common, a, a particular line of development, a self-sense that is at the ethnocentric, while there are other sort of lines of development could be higher. Or what, how do you see that? Well, there are two things in terms of, of what was driving Trump. One, in terms of, yeah, there, there is a fairly sharp line between ethnocentric amber and world-centric orange and green. And it's just that. It's there's between ethnocentric and world-centric. And so ethnocentric is, of course, that group that thinks that that its particular group is the only really worthwhile group, that all others are goofy, silly, wrong, or elite, or nasty, or mean, or whatever they are, they're not my people. There's a very strong us versus them attitude. And that makes it extremely difficult to, I mean, these are, are, are people that, for example, are going to have 
a great deal of trouble. I mean, it busts their hearts, but they're going to have a great deal of trouble, for example, uh, with something like uh, global warming because they don't think world-centrically. It's just not part of their cognitive capacity, or as Keegan would put it, 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 over their heads. And so that break is also the break that separates, for example, religions and keeps them either at a fundamentalist level of, I've got the one and only true way, and all these other religions are demonic. They're, they're literally, you're going to burn in hell forever if you believe that. You cannot get a fundamentalist Pentecostal to say, yes, I agree, a Hindu can, can go to the same heaven I can. It's just not going to happen. And with 60 to 70% of the whole worldwide population at ethnocentric or lower, the vast majority of them believing in a fundamentalist religion of one sort or another, the possibility of anything even vaguely resembling world peace or even human solidarity with people at those stances is zero. It's absolutely zero. And that's what makes ethnocentric. If you have to put your finger on one problem area, that's probably the key interior left-hand crisis point in the world today. When you at least get up to world-centric, whether it's orange or green or any of the, all of the higher stages or levels are, are world-centric, some in quite different ways. So orange, for example, again, attempts to treat all people fairly regardless of race, color, sex, or creed, and this is what the Constitution of the United States was founded on and, and so on. And that really emphasizes freedom. And so the original left party, the original, quote, Democrats, came from orange, and their primary value was indeed freedom. And then the primary political party that they were moving against was the traditionalists, or the what was known as the right. And they believed in special treatment for their chosen group, namely their particular religion with their particular God and their one and only true way to salvation. This is exactly what the world-centric, modern, quote, liberal left came to fight. And those were the two main parties until really starting in around the 60s when green started to emerge. And when that happened, then we got two different wings to both of these parties. So the progressives, the left, because indeed they were progressive, they tended to move with evolution. So a large number of originally orange leftists became green leftists. Now, green shared the world-centric notion with orange. I mean, they felt that they were, uh, they wanted to treat all people fairly. They didn't want to marginalize anybody and so on. And even though they would end up having trouble even with things like, you know, universal. They clearly believed that their views were universally valid, and they did believe in a universal truth, which was theirs. But they believed in equality. They believed in group bonding. And so freedom versus equality became the battle within these two uh, inner wings of the Liberal Party, the Democratic Party. And we see it today. We have the old orange 
Democrats that believe in, in individual freedom and the First Amendment and freedom of the press and so on. And then we have the leading edge far left are green. And these are the ones that believe in equality for everybody, but certainly all of the protected groups and including animals and often including even kids. You know, they support five-year-old kids suing their parents for parental neglect and stuff like that. So they believe in equality, including things like on campuses, having safe spaces and, and microaggression and trigger warnings. And you're not allowed to say anything that will hurt anybody's feelings. So clearly, freedom is put on the back burner and equality is put front and center. And that's the battle that we have between orange and green. It's between, are we going to stick with the First Amendment and free speech? Are we going to curtail free speech so we don't hurt somebody's feelings? That's the battle around political correctness right now. We got the same split happening with the Republican Party because as the, the left moved from orange to green and therefore had this internal split between its own orange members and its green members. So Republicans started out at amber and then as evolution added a stage, then roughly half of the Republicans moved from amber to orange. Now, orange was the old liberal. The, this would be the evangelicals versus the Chamber of Commerce Republicans. Exactly, the so-called Wall Street Republicans. And those are the ones that now are some of the foremost supporters of free speech. And they sort of downplay, you know, the fundamentalist religion. And they're always the ones willing to say, look, let's don't push abortion quite that hard. And they're all coming from an orange stance. And they're strangely in in bed with, with orange Democrats at, at that point. Although they otherwise, the, the things that make Republicans and Democrats different, they still have that. But in terms of levels, they're, they're, they're still coming from these fundamentally similar values. But so we have that kind of split happening. But the real problem is that ethnocentric to world-centric gap. That's where, where right now most of the world's interior cultural clashes are coming from ethnocentric versus world-centric. So for the past probably 40 years now, over 90% of terrorist acts had been committed by ethnocentric fundamentalist religious believers. Because they really believe that they have the one and only true way and that literally everybody else has got it wrong. And so not only do they hate things like if if they happen to be Islamic, then they all, of course, hate the great Satan, which is the West in general, the United States in particular. But they also hate most of their other, you know, their religious buddies. I mean, they're they're at each other's throats there as well, because if you're ethnocentric, there can only be one correct way. So that is the single major problem of you know, disasters on, on the world today. And of the three, of ethnocentric amber, uh, world-centric orange, and world-centric green, even though Trump sort of activated and took people from so all three of those, his largest segment clearly was that ethnocentric 
amber stance. And that's where his own sort of sexism and his own racism, his own misogyny, his own xenophobia, his closed, you know, the borders, no open borders, don't let those foreigners in. And I'm not saying that some of those ideas, you know, I'm not saying they're good or bad. I'm just saying that aside for right now, we're just talking about the actual forces that moved him and that actually got him where he is. And clearly one of the major ones was this grand ethnocentric, this 50% of the culture that doesn't get listened to very well, except through, you know, evangelical or fundamentalist uh, Christian forces in this country, which, which are fairly significant. And then the other thing, though, that, and this is the, the force that nobody saw coming, including Trump and his people, which is why nobody guessed that he, he would win, is that anti-green. Because the thing that defined Trump more than his sexism, more than his racism, more than his xenophobia, is every word out of his mouth was anti-green. Every single thing he said. He's anti-political correctness with a vengeance. He is anti-global warming. He is pro-military spending. He's anti-open borders. He's anti-immigration. He wants to uh, cut taxes on the wealthy. He wants to institute tariffs. Every one of these things is anti-green. And it's that actual force, that anti-green morphic field, that he caught. And it came across in, for example, there were polls on who is the most honest, Hillary or Trump? And, of course, I mean, there were newspapers that were gave a daily list of the number of lies that Trump told. So, so the newspaper said, today uh, we counted 17, we fact-checked 17 lies that uh, Trump told. Uh, today, uh, yesterday, it was uh, 15 lies. And, and they daily kept a list of this stuff. Polls consistently showed who do you think is more honest, Hillary or Trump? Trump consistently won every one of those polls. People thought he was more honest. And the reason is because he could speak his non-truth more passionately. The culture had already adopted and adapted to a culture of no truth. That wasn't what mattered. What mattered is can you put your no truth more believably, more forcefully, more passionately? If so, well, then you're the, quote, most honest one in a culture that doesn't recognize truth. Well, and for these people, he was articulating perhaps a greater truth, which was that this political correct industrial complex had to be blown up or had to be taken on. That was in part his own conscious desire, but I'm saying there's also this unconscious anti-green morphic field that he was also riding. And this was the same thing that happened in Brexit, for example, and, and we're seeing you know across Europe and around the world, really. Brexit, they admitted that they lied. They, people would say, well, wait a minute. You, they, they would have ads on the side of those you know, double-decker buses that you know, go around in London, and it would say something like, I can't remember exactly what these numbers are, but it would be something like 360,000 euros per week are, is being spent by Britain 
to be part of the EU. We're going to take all of that and put it on national health services. And everybody who looked at that knew that both of those were false. There was, it was nothing near that number. It was like Trump saying, I'm going to save $380 million on prescription drugs when the whole prescription drug program in this country could cost $78 million. So, but it just, you know, it was so, so who cares? Facts don't matter. Facts are completely fashion. They're just hemlinks. They're, you know, science, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, no difference. There's no truth. It's all a perspectival madness. And that's sunk into this culture. And unfortunately, once you get in, it's extremely hard to get out of that. Because the only thing normally that would let you out of that is to present truth. So-called truth to power. But if there is no truth, you've got nothing to present. Speaking of the morphogenic field, we're, we're ready for a new backlash against that, right? Exactly. I mean, where do we go from here? Uh, exactly. What, what's next? Yeah, and I think I had sort of suggested there were at least two. They're not, they're not contradictory. That, um, some degree of both of them could happen. But, but the two essential approaches are, one is for green itself to, in a sense, self-heal. Now, this is going to happen to some degree. Whether it's enough or not, and we have to go to the second option, which I'll, I'll get to in just a moment, uh, remains to be seen. But I did notice, it was curious, that after Trump had won, there was a... Um, a vast sort of screaming, hair-pulling, you know, nauseating, I can't stand it response, which was uh, vocal and upset and just totally devastated by what had happened. There were, I would say about 5 to 10% of the responses that, that were uh, made public and were getting some sort of attention were people saying, I understand the problems of Trump. I mean, I'm one of the ones that almost said I was going to leave the country if he won. But now that I see this happen, and I have to say, okay, what's that 50% of the people that did this? And how did I miss that? Why, why was that such a, a shocking surprise to me and everybody else, for that matter, including every pollster in existence? And many of them would say, I simply have to do my best to try to reach out to these people. I have to try and understand what's going on with them. I don't have to agree with them, but I have to have some sort of compassion. I can't keep looking at them as deplorables. And I'm sorry to say that I have. That's exactly how I've looked at them. That's got to be a part of why Trump is in office that I actually helped put him there. And that's exactly right. That's exactly part of what I'm saying. And, and this, you know, five to 10% of the people that I heard saying it, I could tell they were, they were genuine. They were sincere. They were shocked. They were, I can't believe, you know, that I did that and that I missed it. And that I didn't see how my very actions were ones that were going to put Trump in because we're just not listening to half of the people of this country. How could that possibly happen? And so, so that kind of understanding is something that should be in place anyway. We should have, to the degree it's possible, 
for different stages to get along. And they can't totally get along until second tier, of course. But but nonetheless, there's healthy and there's unhealthy versions of, of, of every stage. And unhealthy is mean-spirited, nasty, looking at them is deplorable, and so on. And that doesn't help. That hurts. And it, and it hurts not only just because of the turmoil that it, it creates in culture, but it hurts because it forces these more obviously obnoxious moments. So, I mean, it, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, if you people keep that up, then this half of the people you're calling deplorables, by the way, they're going to vote somebody in that's one of those deplorables. And that deplorable is going to start making laws that govern you. So just keep it up, buddy, and see what you get. Well, they did, and this is what they got. And it's going to hurt. I'm by no means arguing that it's a good thing that Trump is in. I am arguing that this is one of the main causes of it. And yeah. that the orange and green, quote, elites that had looked down on uh, all of these racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, misogynistic, all of that West Virginia hillbilly you know, mentality with that kind of mean-spirited lack of care and concern, that attitude itself is immediately and partially responsible for putting Trump into office. And so that has, to the extent that these people are having that realization, then that's going to help, because that's going to help soften that nastiness between this. And that, of course, is what evolution is trying to do. I mean, it's trying to to find a sturdier foundation that it can move forward. So hopefully something like that um, will start to happen to some degree. Um, If it just continues, then it's just going to continue to alienate these groups, and we're going to get more of this kind of stuff as the leading edge continues to jam. Because remember, all of those attitudes are driven by that performative contradiction of aperspectival madness. It's one of the very high quality that Green has, is his capacity for multiculturalism. That's not something that a human being is born with. That's the product of six major stages of development. It's a very high achievement. But if you're going to use the broken form of that, if you're going to use the unhealthy form of that, and you're at the leading edge of evolution yourself, you are the leading edge, and you're taking one of its higher qualities and uh, breaking it and giving us this unhealthy version that as a leading edge, it's going to jam. It's not going to work. It's going to quit. And we're going to get exactly what we've got now, which is going to be Mr. Trump and a nightmare of virtually everything that world-centric orange and green is introduced, he's going to undo. And it's going to be horrifying. I mean, I can't even, I don't even want to think about global warming four years from now. So, and not to mention the, the whole cabinet he's putting in is, is just uh, it's unbelievable, but that's what we get for that for, for you know for that that kind of approach to this. So so the the other option is if Green can't self heal, and I think one of the really core things that's going to have to happen for that is Green has 
got to understand the difference between dominator hierarchies and growth hierarchies. This has been one of the absolutely crucial disasters that that came in the wake of Green almost from the beginning is that it didn't, you know, again, good reasons, honorable reasons. This is a very high stage of development. It's smarter than Orange. So it gets up there and it says, okay, we don't want to rank people unfairly. Unfortunately, it just stopped as we don't want to rank people. It makes judgments, but then it claims that all judgments are bad or all ranking is bad. And the ranking that it has are, is actually a growth hierarchy. So it ranks world-centric is better than ethnocentric is better than narcissistic. And that's correct, but that's an actual growth hierarchy. But they don't allow hierarchies. So they don't even have an understanding of the correct judgments that they make. They have no understanding of, of how they got that. And that allows them to just keep making judgments without any understanding of why they're doing it. And that's why they end up with this whole political correctness extremist nightmare, because they don't understand how to make judgments based on developmental depth. And that's just a huge problem. So they just completely devastated developmental psychology when they uh, came into the universities and departments everywhere closed even though developmental psychology is the only discipline that shows us how to grow out of prejudice. Mm -hmm. Because dominator hierarchies are only used by people on low levels of growth hierarchies. Somebody at a world-centric level of a growth hierarchy doesn't use a dominator hierarchy. It's immoral. So it just doesn't happen. Somebody who's at an ethnocentric or egocentric stage of a growth hierarchy, they're the ones that use dominator hierarchies. They think this is exactly perfectly natural. Those are the people that had slavery all the time. Right. Those are the people that you know created military empires and, and spent their time you know beating the shit out of each other. Green doesn't see the difference. It thinks all hierarchies are bad, so it doesn't distinguish between dominator hierarchies like the caste system and real oppression and you know all of those kinds of nightmares versus growth hierarchies. And growth hierarchies are how you overcome dominator hierarchies. What they do by wiping out both of them is they wipe out how you get rid of dominator hierarchies because they don't have any growth hierarchies to get rid of them with. Right. So this realization of the reality of growth hierarchies, is, which is basically the evolutionary or the integral view, exactly is the way forward. Yeah, it, it, it's got it's got to happen because otherwise you just you have no way. Not only do you have no way of getting out of dominator hierarchies, you lose your capacity for judging with wisdom. Again, the the classic performative contradiction for somebody green is ranking is bad don't have any ranking so we don't rank anything at all but that itself is a ranking it says not ranking is better than ranking so i rank not ranking much higher than i rank ranking you know well but that's ranking yeah and they go uh, uh argument i got into with one of my professors at naropa which is a very green with some, I think, a lot of integral sensibilities too, but I argued that 
oaks grow from acorns to seedlings to saplings to oaks right. in that right. order and never any other order. And exactly. By that. I know. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And so the next thing then is, of course, the stage immediately beyond green, which is something that Claire Gray's, for example, referred to as as second tier. And the reason is that there was a, a huge jump. All of the stages at, at first tier and different models give anywhere from four to six or seven stages. But all of those, uh, each one of them thinks that its truth and values are the only real truth and values in existence. And then when you get to sleep, the second tier, from green to what we call teal or centauric, Levenger called it autonomous, and then the next stage after that she called integrated. But when we jump to that, those are the first stages to think that all of the previous stages have something of significance. They're all important in their own way. If nothing else, because each of them is a stage of growth, uh, overall human growth and development, and you can't delete any of them. So when we get an actual second-tier culture, that's going to be a culture that is the first truly inclusive culture that we've ever, ever, ever had. Do you see that leading edge growing, Ken? Do you see it in the culture? Uh, I do slightly, because what most people don't realize is that virtually all of the models of psychological development that we have, and there are, oh, at least two dozen fairly well-respected ones, not to mention dozens of others. And, you know, in in, uh, integral psychology, I actually reviewed over 100 different developmental models. I actually gave charts in that book that listed all 100 of these different models. And what was interesting is the great similarity among um, most of them. Virtually all of those models are developed by focusing on just one or two, sometimes three at the most, of the multiple intelligences that we have. So we have maybe a dozen or so different developmental lines or multiple intelligences. And any particular model that's studying the levels of development does so using just one or two or three of these lines. So so they're, 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 you can't have one just one model that's going to cover all of those. And the way I handle it is I do integral theory is actually what's called integral meta theory. And I give a meta analysis so that when I present sort of levels, those stand for altitude, general altitude. And the altitude is the same for all of the lines. So, so we have a dozen different lines, and those are all different, but each of them goes through the same basic levels of development. And I just call those altitudes. And those altitudes, without very many qualities, so they don't have like cognitive qualities or aesthetic qualities or moral qualities, those are all present in an individual line. So there's a moral line of development. And its levels are named with sort of moral characteristics uh, in mind. So, for example, classically, there are three broad stages in Kohlberg's, which is called pre-conventional, conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. And then we have cognitive line of development. If we use Piaget's, then we have pre-operational, 
uh, with sensorial motor, pre-operational, concrete operational, and formal operational. You can't use the terms for one of those with the others. So it's common, for example, for people to say that formal operational thinking, which is the highest of, of Piaget's four or so major levels of cognitive development, it's common to call that post-conventional because it can support a, a post-conventional moral development. But somebody can be at formal operational cognition and have a conventional moral belief system. As a matter of fact, they can have a pre-conventional moral belief system. So formal operational isn't equal to post-conventional because you can you can rationally believe egocentric morals or ethnocentric morals or world-centric morals. You can be rational and think, value those particular values. Sure. So, so a lot of the actual pioneers who created all these different models were actually using, you know, studying a particular line. So Lovinger was studying the self-line, Gray's was studying the values line, Kohlberg was studying the morals line, Piaget was studying the cognitive line, and so on. And not one of them alone can be correct. So what you have to do is, is, is what I call an integral psychograph, which is you just, you know, use the various altitude and you can either number them or give them colors or something neutral like that. And then you list the dozen or so different lines and, and you put them all on that graph. And a person can be at sort of different levels on each of those lines. So when, when you come in and say, you know, we, we've been sort of loosely saying, oh, 60% of the population is, is the ethnocentric. Well, what that really means is that their self-related lines are ethnocentric, uh, which means some sort of amber altitude. But many of them can think in terms of orange cognition. They can think rationally, but their values are amber. So when we say 60%, we mean their values, we mean or, they, or, or their self-sense, which Lovinger calls conformist. We also refer to as mythic membership. So that's what we're talking about. So whenever we say percentages, we have to keep that in mind. And the cognitive line is, is often a stage or two ahead of others. So if we just look at cognitive, the average in terms of research that I've done and people also developmentalists that I've talked with, about 10 years ago, it was at about 3.5%. For, for integral? Oh, at second tier. So spiral dynamics, for example, which just measures the values line, despite what they keep saying. 3% was at the equivalent of teal. And at turquoise, shocking, 0.5%. Not much. Several years ago, Beck had put second tier at 5%. So that's, I think, in the ballpark, it's something like that. I think over the past decade or so, it's gone up one or two points, but even at around five to six percent. And now, also again, this will this will change if you look at, for example, professors in physics at colleges. Their cognitive line at probably at least twenty percent of them are second tier. That's just kind of the selection process that happens there. 
and you find a generally higher percentage of people at Integral who are actual leaders in various thought fields, right. or even uh, sort of like entertainment, or even brilliant politicians will tend to have cognitive, a higher percentage of cognitive in second tier. Their center of gravity, their self sense, could still be orange or green. I think it's gone up maybe a couple points over the last decade or two, and I think it's at around 5 or 6% right now. Remember, though, when we get to 10%, we seem to get that tipping point where the leading-edge values tend to kind of permeate the culture, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. So again, right now, the whole point about green is that it's permeating the culture all right, and it's a sick green. It's a mean green meme. It's an unhealthy version of what's otherwise a quite, quite high stage of development. And it's just gone off the deep end. It's just gone gone self-contradictory. And I think in large part, you can trace that to the kind of politics that happens in a humanities uh, university. But that's where all of this has its essential origin point. But if we get second tier that's fairly healthy, and most of them at least emerge fairly healthy, even if they they end up getting a little uh, wacky uh, as they go on, but if it emerges fairly healthy, teal or or turquoise, then that's going to permeate the culture with this unifying and integrating tendency. So it's going to start providing, in just plain terms, a more loving, compassionate, caring type of atmosphere. And not just out of an abstract, oh, we should care for everybody uh, because there's nobody superior, everybody's the same. And just that's all, unfortunately, just a lot of, in too many cases, just a lot of abstract rhetoric. But this would be coming, in a sense, from a genuine heart space. And so I think when that happens, there can be so many changes worldwide when that happens anyway. And we have no idea of what this would be like because there's never, ever been a culture anywhere that had an organizing center that came from integral stages of development. Pretty, Pretty exciting. It is. It is. So you and I just might sneak in uh, under the gun on that one. Yeah, I hope so. I'd love to see it. I would too. And and I actually, I think there's a case to be made that Trump could actually accelerate it. because Well, that's the point. Yeah, he, he, he busts up all of the calcified political worldviews. I mean, he's just right. all over the map. That, and that right. sort of throws the cards in the air in a new way. Right. And second, he's such a spectacularly good example of how not to be. Well, <laughs> that, you know, a great that, bad example. <laughs> that is not something to sneeze at. It, it, you know. know, truly bad examples can be enormous teachers. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so maybe we hope for that to keep hope alive, Ken. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we had seen, you know, the political system was so frozen uh, up to that yeah. point anyway, and it was just getting more and more ridiculous that, you know, when he came by, he upended both parties. 
I mean, they're both scrambling for what the hell they could possibly mean now. And so that alone could be a real learning mechanism. They're all going to have to come back and say, okay, what do we really think is important? And how can we do it, by the way, with a little bit more care and love than the kind of crap that we've gotten ourselves into? That's got to be going through their minds. Yes. No, that's the part that's exciting. It is. So uh, gird your (laughs) loins. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we will move this thing forward. There it is, sir. But, uh, thank you so much, Ken, for your amazing insight and for really the new world. We're talking about the integral world. You've done more than anybody to bring that into being, and I, we're all so grateful to you for that. Uh, bless you, my friend. Bless you. Yeah. And the paper is Trump and the Post-Truth World. And I'll link yes. to it on my site, Daily Evolver, and it's posted at IntegralLife.com. There you go. All right, All right, sir. Thank you. All right. Much love, Ken. Take care. Much love, buddy. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. It's Jeff again. Thank you so much for listening, especially to you hardcores who made it all the way to the end. Good job. Um, you can find more of Ken's stuff at KenWilber.com and Integral Life. I'm also at Integral Life, and then I have, of course, my own website where I post all kinds of things, and that's dailyevolver.com. So again, thanks for listening, and until next time, keep it integral.